So a quick story for you guys. There's someone near and dear to me this story is about that none of you know, and I'm not going to use names in case you ever do meet them. But there's, uh, there's a person close to me that once we were talking and they said the following quote. They said, I just don't like to think about deep things. And I didn't really resonate with that. Like I'm someone who probably overthinks a lot of things. Maybe some of you are like, yeah, it's like, that's me. Like I'm driving in the car and there's nothing going on. There's no radio waves upstairs. I'm just cruising, you know. But some of you guys are probably on the opposite end of the spectrum where you wake up. And I'm the guy who wakes up at like 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm not even stressed about anything, but I'm just thinking, you know, thinking about what I did this week. Got to figure out what the weather's going to be like tomorrow, what I got to do. I'm not even stressed. I just, it's a plague. My mind just runs sometimes. And I was thinking about that a lot recently. Uh, kind of as Dave was just praying, I resonated with that prayer a lot because I felt that there's so many things that are asking for our attention. I'm sure you guys feel that too. Important things. A lot of important things going on in our country, in our world. And then, of course, all just the normal little things in life that require a lot of thought and a lot of attention. And I, um, I actually had this sort of come to a head right after the death of George Floyd. I was sitting in my neighbor's backyard, and we were talking about everything going on in our country. And he's a believer as well. And we were just kind of talking about how the gospel impacts everything we're witnessing. And I felt really, um, I don't know, maybe you guys felt this too. I felt really just burdened to figure it out. You know, like I, we were talking and I was, what's right? And how should we think about this? And how did grace and justice intersect here? And what, what's, what's our stance supposed to be? And I just felt so weighed down by the responsibility that came with that. And as we were talking and talking, I, we kind of came to this conclusion. And this might sound... Um, this might sound cliche or uh, too easy of an answer, but I really just came to realize the gospel has to be the answer to this question. Jesus has to be the answer to this question because I can't figure it out on my own. And some people will use that as an abuse. Some people will look at uh, a cop-out answer and say, yeah, I just, I let God and let go. You know, and they, they don't engage with what's going on in our world. And then some people fall on the opposite end of the spectrum where they, they try to figure everything out. And I think this is where I was in that moment, trying to figure everything out. And then peace got into that. And it really has to be the other way around. And as I was praying and thinking through this, I realized this is true with our country, but everything in my life, that if, if I'm not first surrendering to the Lord and being saturated with the way that he sees things, all I have is, is nothing. I don't have anything to bring to the situation of value. And so I was thinking when John asked me to preach, I was thinking about a few different passages or things to preach on. And I settled on this passage in Ephesians 3, which we're going to turn to in just a moment. I think it'll pop up on the screen. And it's neat because I was telling John about this, and I kind of usually keep him in the loop of, of what I'm going to be speaking about when I speak. And I, I was talking with him in the back about a month ago, and I said, I think I'm going to speak on Ephesians 3. And it talks about understanding the love of Christ. And I started describing it to him, and he said, hold on, stop, 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 stop. He said, I don't want to hear anything else you have to say. I said, okay, John, thanks a lot, man. But then it's because he said, I've been thinking about the next series that we're going to be doing. And for months, I've been praying about this idea that we need to have the mind of Christ. And I thought... Okay, cool. And so he's got a bunch of things planned for the next, I think, month or so. And he's, he asked if I would be willing to kind of start this series off since this is where the Lord led both of, both of us to be thinking. So I'm just going to give you guys a heads up now. I'm going to spoil my whole message. There's not going to be any surprise. What we're going to be talking about is how thinking about Jesus and the love that he gives us affects our lives and how that should affect our thinking and everything about it. So there it is. If you got 
anything to do, pressing, you can probably just wrap it up, roll out now. But that's where we're going to be going. And so we get there in Ephesians 3. And there's one other little uh, precursor I want to give you guys. At the end, toward the end of the message, we're going to be having communion today. And there's going to be a few other things that we make a little bit of time for that are like personal, interactive, sort of devotional type activities. Nothing crazy, probably five minutes or something like that. Um, but I'm just giving you a heads up since it's a little bit different. And my, my hope with those things, some scripture reading and things like that, is twofold. Is one, that, that would use this time that we've got together to orient our thoughts more toward Jesus and help us fix our eyes on him and that would be a worshipful, worshipful experience. But also that maybe there's something that we do this morning that could be incorporated for you in just your weekly time throughout your day that can help you interact with the Lord and have your thoughts turn to him more often. So John knows, I'm not doing anything crazy, I gave him a heads up, but just wanted to give you guys a heads up as well. And now we'll read Ephesians 3, this is verses 14 through 19 is where we're going to be together this morning. I gotta turn this puppy on, that'll help. Okay, so this is what it says, if you'd like to turn there. It says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Jesus, it's so good that you allow us to come gather together as a body of believers like this, that you even structured your church, that it would be something where we can depend on one another and lean on one another to be encouraged. And we're so thankful for your word that by it we can know you and we can open up a passage like this and even just in a few verses see about your character and about your nature and what you'd have us to do and how you'd have us to live. And more than anything, we're thankful for your love. We're thankful that all this has a point, that you loved us even while we were sinning enough to die for us. So my prayer this morning is simple, that you'd open our minds to understand this passage, you'd open our hearts to be affected by it, and that we'd leave here this morning glorifying you and better off for it. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So this first section of this passage is very simple, but I wanted to pause here and look at this in verses 14 through part of verse 16. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And I'm, again, I'm spoiling this. So ultimately this prayer, the end goal of it is that we'd understand the love of Christ so that we may be filled with this, this phrase here, the fullness of God, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But I, I think it's worth pointing out here that Paul even prays for our minds to be opened. And I, I like this passage, and part of the reason I chose it, where, where there's a few passages like this in Scripture, where one of the apostles or Jesus or Moses or one of the kings has sort of this charge or this prayer to those following him. And it's, it's special because it's, a very, it's often a very clear and concise way where they're communicating their hopes and their prayers for those people following. And I, I feel like that's something that we see a lot in movies, right? Like you'll see a, a parent giving the last words to their child or a king kind of passing on a last piece of wisdom. And it, it's special. And there's a handful of these passages that really stick out to me. But this is one of those. And in Ephesians, as Paul writes this, there's got to be so much emotion behind this. You know, he, he's praying and telling these people exactly what his hopes and ambitions for them would be in the Lord. And he's got specific people in mind. There's, there's reasons that we aren't 
privy to that he chose the words that he did in this passage. And so I love reading these passages simply, if nothing else, to see that human experience, but also to see how we can grow from this. What, what can be applied from these passages to us? And the fact that Paul prays for them to be able to know the love of Christ is a simple thing, but something that I think bears some weight. Because there's two sides of this coin where knowing and understanding and, and grasping the love of Jesus has a, a level of personal discipline. If we're doing nothing to fill up that bucket, it's gonna be empty and dry, right? If you have no personal disciplines that lead you to interact with Jesus, well, it's, it's pretty likely you're not gonna have a life and a mind that's really saturated with thinking about him. But on the other side of the equation, if it weren't for his initiation of this relationship with us, we would have nothing. We would have absolutely nothing. It is only a grace of God that we can know him. And, you know, Paul, being on the front lines of the evangelism that went on in the world during his day, he knew that better than anyone. He himself, I was actually reading in the Jesus Storybook Bible to Uriah this morning, the story of Saul's conversion to Paul. If it weren't for Jesus stopping him on the road to Damascus, we wouldn't have any of these letters from Paul that we learned so much from. And the same is true for every believer. If, if we didn't have Jesus coming to interact with us, we would be lost. And so I say this before we move on. I just say this because I, I recall as I was writing and, and reading about some of this, I wonder how many times I, I got half of what I could have out of a church service or out of a youth group experience or out of a time spent reading the Bible or any of these chances I have to interact with Jesus, especially on a corporate level, simply because I didn't come humbly before Jesus asking to learn. And I think sometimes I probably overestimate what I know about the gospel. And so I come into a, a time in the morning where I read scripture, and I think more about just reminding myself. But that's true, but there's so much more to this. And so all this to say, as, as we talk through this this morning, that's the attitude we're to have. In fact, every Sunday morning, every time we meet with Jesus, that's the attitude we have, one of humility, where we come before him knowing we bring nothing to the table. That's why our world is so filled with darkness. There's so many people just blind. They've rejected Jesus, but Romans 1 and plenty of other passages just say really clearly that God's given them over to that. They've chosen sin, and God's given them over to the passions of their sins so that they're blind. They don't understand Jesus. They don't understand their own sin. They don't understand the darkness they bring into this world. And so we've got so many people viewing the world and what's happening in it the wrong way, simply because they don't know. They haven't been touched by the Holy Spirit in a way that awakened their souls. I'm very, very grateful for the fact that Jesus has done that for me and for us, and that when we talk about him and we read scripture, it can be fruitful and profitable and not just a vain pursuit that leaves us confused. And so the question that this begs for us is how deeply do we know God? And what Paul writes after this is this progression of how we come to be filled with the fullness of God. And you can read books on this. You can find whole sermon series on this progression that he talks about here. I'm gonna give you the quick outline and we're gonna focus on one or two parts of this this morning just because we ain't got all day. Basically what, what the progression is is he prays for these believers that they would be strengthened and because that they would be strengthened they could be indwelt by Christ and when that happens, that they would be rooted in love, which would lead them to comprehend the love of Christ so that they could be filled with the fullness of God. It's a beautiful progression. And, and there's so much in here to unpack. There's so much that Jesus is doing in our lives with each, each one of these steps. And I read more commentaries than I care to count on some of those different things. But what I settled on reading through this is the main part I want to focus is on this comprehension and knowledge of Christ's love, primarily 
Because that's the part that we have the biggest influence over. Most of the other things going on in this progression are primarily, if not fully, up to the work of God. We won't be strengthened if it's not for God working. He will not indwell us if it weren't for his nature and his character and his choice. We won't be rooted in love apart from him. We won't even comprehend anything apart from him. However, we do have a part to play there in that we can choose to grasp and interact with Jesus in a way that bears fruit in our minds, or we cannot. And so there's so much that goes behind this thought of the love of Christ. And what I've seen in confession time, I feel like I do a lot of confessing when I preach. I just tell you how bad of a person I am, I'm not much of a sinner I am, it's probably a good thing. But confession time, that I think often my own laziness gets in the way of knowing Jesus more. Maybe you can resonate with that, that I don't, I look back at my practices and my daily routines and I don't see a desperate hunger for Jesus the way that I would really love to in the way that I interact with him. And a little, uh, a little analogy here for you. I got one more confession I'll make. I am a pretty big fan of The Office. Some of you may know the show well and watched it more times than I. Some of you maybe have never watched it. I, I'm sorry and I pray for you people, okay? But it started actually right when Anna and I got married. So if this is a bad thing, She's to blame. But we started watching it. I'd never actually watched The Office before, for those of you who've seen it. And uh, we'd put on an episode or two before we kind of go to bed. And before long, it kind of became our nightly routine. You know, you have some dinner, you have a snack, you watch The Office, you go to bed. It's kind of a nice little peaceful night. And then before long, it was every night we were watching The Office. And one episode, I don't know if you guys know how Netflix works, one episode turns into two pretty quick. And two turns into six really quick, right? And uh, it didn't take too long to pound through the office. I think it's nine seasons, eight seasons. We got through that puppy pretty quickly. And so then we made the decision kind of in our marriage that we were going to watch it again and again and again. And we've probably watched through a dozen times now. And it kind of just became the show we'd turn on and fall asleep to. Again, I'm not saying this is a good thing. TV isn't always the best use of your time. I get it. Don't judge me lest you be judged, okay? I'm just telling you how it is. I'm just keeping it real. But what I noticed is, now that I've watched through it more times than it's probably good for me to, there's still things I notice that make me laugh. There's still little things characters do on the side that I've never seen before, little props included that I never picked up, and I get an extra little chuckle at it. And, and even, I, I will say, there's even moments of, of human experience and emotion, even in a show like The Office, that are kind of beautiful, and I say, oh man, that's, that's really a real experience these people are going through and kind of conveys a lot of what we go through. Now, some of you have a similar experience, just with much more important works of art. Maybe a great book that's not The Office, or things like that that have a lot more depth than what I'm talking about. However, I think you get what I'm saying here. There's, there's layers of knowledge and familiarity that can only really come with consistency, repetition, experience. And I've cut myself so short, I think, of my enjoyment and satisfaction in Jesus simply because I've failed to do that. I've failed to go back to him day after day consistently the way that I ought to. And I, it's sad to say, but true, that it's it's pro there's probably been seasons of my life where watching The Office has been more of a consistent routine in my life than going to Jesus. And I'm encouraged thinking about that because of the potential that's there. That Although that's probably a mistake and a poor use of my time, that I, I have that opportunity. Jesus is waiting constantly for us to commune with us. He's never unavailable. He's never distant. He's always right there. And I'm going to focus just on a few words here. If you look in verses 18 and 19, Paul prays 
that these followers of Christ may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Sort of a play on words here that hints back to what we talked to in the beginning of this passage. He's praying that they would know something that's unknowable. That they would know something that they can't know. And it's because of the infinite nature of the love of Christ that Paul has to pray this prayer. If it were something easy to comprehend like mathematics, okay, maybe some of you don't like math. I don't know, whatever your favorite subject was, whatever your favorite field of study is, something you can comprehend simply by putting yourself to it, then we wouldn't need to pray to understand Jesus. We'd simply have to do it. But the fact is, we can't know the love of Jesus because it's far beyond our human ability to comprehend. And there's two words used here, this word comprehend and this word know. I don't know Greek, I'm not a Greek scholar, I know how to do a little bit of study in Greek in my Bible study software, and what I've found from some commentators who are a lot smarter than I am, was these words come to two or maybe several connotations that I think bear weight. One of them is that there's a logical nature to this. These words could be used in the court of law, in accounting, that it had to do with looking at the information you had, understanding it, and making an informed decision based off of what you had. The other connotation here I thought was really powerful is this word comprehend can also be used, uh, can be translated the word seize or overtake. And in other words here, what we have here is that we're, we're being told that we ought to love, know the love of Christ in a way that we are logically completely convinced of it. And also that it's so powerful that it overtakes us, that it takes control of us because we understand the depth and the gravity of it. And there's so many passages. I, I love doing this. I just want to read a couple passages in Scripture that echo this same sentiment. And I think it's good to do this sometimes because we might read a, a command or a, an instruction in Scripture and think that that's sort of a one-off idea. But when we see that the whole canon of Scripture is giving us these commands and it's not just whispering it to us, but that it's screaming it to us, I think that can give us power. So I'm just going to read a few passages here. Most of these are found in the New Testament. In fact, I think all these ones are, but they're all over the Old Testament as well. Matthew 6, 33 says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12.2, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Titus 2, 11 through 13 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So many other passages like this that talk about seeking, waiting for, thinking about, dwelling on the things of God. There's so much of the Christian life that is a call to action. In fact, if you finish this letter that Paul's written, it's a lot of just, okay, now you understand who Jesus is, here's what you're all, you ought to do. Here are your commands, here are your marching orders. And that's true. If, if we're not being disciplined and obedient, we're going to fall short and we're going to have a lot of pain that we bring into our lives. We needlessly did so. But also, if we're not dwelling on Jesus, if we're not saturating our minds with him, 
that side of things is going to be a lot harder. It's going to be a lot more difficult to understand why we need to do these difficult commands we've been given. We're not going to be compelled and overtaken, like this passage says, to those actions we're being called to. And there's this other passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing right now, but a lot of commentators agree that what Paul is doing here is actually sort of ahead of his time. He says that we would understand the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. The breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And if you try to think about that, there's an extra dimension there that we wouldn't normally use in those sorts of measurements. And lots of commentators agree on this. Paul was actually describing a four-dimensional love of Christ in that it's one that has infinite space, but also time. The fourth dimension there being that it's infinite, not in just its far reach, but in the time. That Jesus is eternal, and this love has been everlasting to everlasting. And that it always will be. And that's terminology that wouldn't have been used until more recently, but that Paul understood the vastness and the gravity of the love of Christ. And I'm going to tie this into one other passage here that really is, I think, powerful and has always really spoken a lot to me. It's in 1 John, 1 John 5, 3. And you can look this up later. You can kind of contrast 1 John 5, 3 and 1 John 2, 3. And what John does there is he equates in, in chapter 2 knowing Jesus to obeying him. In other words, if you truly know the Lord, if you know him in an experiential, personal way, you will obey him. If you truly know him, that will be the action that follows. And then in chapter 5, he says, if you truly love him, you will obey him. Passage that it was really challenging to me. It says that we would obey Jesus and his commands are not burdensome. In other words, they're easy. That if we truly love God, it's not some slog to walk hand in hand and obey the commands he's given us. It's what we'll desire. The psalmist talk about that as well. But in other words, there's three things at play here. The knowledge of Christ, the love of Christ, and the obedience of Christ. And what we're informed through this passage and others is that those things are hand in hand. If you want to know how to obey Jesus, you have the formula. It's to know and love him. If you want to know how to love Jesus more, it's to know and obey him. These things are, are tied hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. And it, it's just... I see that as so powerful because we often want so much more out of our relationship with Christ and we have these desires to have more joy and sanctification. This is how we go about it, to know him. I'll hear Christians or preachers even sometimes say, I don't want to get caught up in theology. I, I just want to get caught up in Jesus. And I don't get that because theology is the study or the knowledge of Jesus. Understanding the deep things of him is what we're called to do. In fact, in Hebrews, there's this sort of confusing passage, some of you might be familiar with this, where they talk about this king priest named Melchizedek from the Old Testament that interacted with Abraham. And it's sort of tricky, and we don't really know much about him besides that passage and one or two others. And it's this sort of in-depth writing that the author of Hebrews gives us. And then he stops in the middle of this, and what confuses a lot of people as they read it, myself included, and he says, look, I'm giving you the basics here. And he says, I'm just giving you spiritual milk because you can't handle anything more than this. And I, I read that and I think, if this is the milk, if this is the basics of who Jesus is, I don't even know if I, I want to know what the stake would be. Right? I got no shot at understanding that. But that's the truth, that oftentimes we miss out on so much more because we've just failed to put the time in and the humility in that goes to knowing Jesus the way that he could really be known. The last thing I want to point out from this section here 
is that this entire prayer is a corporate one. It's not just an individual pursuit. That Paul is praying here for a body of believers. And it even says here, I'm losing my place now, that, they, that we would know together the love of Christ. And so I, I read that and just realize how blessed of a thing it is to have a church like this. That we can come together on a Sunday or when we're able to do things like the outyard Bibles, backyard Bible studies or the core groups that we typically have, that we have a body of believers that we can come together with to be encouraged. One of my favorite things in any church service is just to hear the voices of other believers singing the truth about Jesus. We get together and we've had our small groups and I have learned and been challenged in countless ways by people in this room, things that I never would have been able to come face to face with were it not for someone else bringing it to my attention. And so all this idea of coming to know Jesus in a fuller way and how deeply do you know him is something we're not meant to do in isolation. If you don't have believers and brothers and sisters in Christ that you're walking hand in hand with, find them. They're here. We want to do that together. And that's really the only way we can know him. And so the last thing we'll look at in this passage is that when we do this, when this whole progression has happened, the end point of it, as you read just there in verse 19, is that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. The fullness of of God. That's sort of an uncommon phrase in Scripture. It doesn't appear, and there's not a ton of similar phrases that appear throughout Scripture. It's a nice phrase. It's in a handful of songs that we sing, and it sounds nice, but when I was reading that and preparing to teach and preach on this, I thought, I don't know that I truly know what the meaning is behind that. And essentially what this comes down to is we look at a handful of different passages that speak into this, is that the fullness of God is what we were always intended to be. It can also be translated the perfection of God. One of the really neat things about this passage is, and one of the things that gives us the most clarity into this phrase is in John 17. You don't have to turn there now, but I encourage you, if you're not familiar with that chapter, it's a really worthwhile chapter to jot down on your hand and read later. That's probably the most prominent example of Jesus doing what Paul's doing here. He goes off in the garden and he's praying for his followers. And he even prays in that passage for believers that would come to know, to know him as a result of his disciples. In other words, that includes us, believers that weren't in that age but would be in the age to come. And in his prayer there, he talks about this unity, and he uses similar terminology that we would have with Jesus and the Father. And he prays that we would be one with the Father in the same way that Jesus is one with the Father. It's sort of a mind-blowing prayer. But in other words, that's what the fullness of God is. That both in this life and in eternity, we would have this perfected union with God. That we would walk so closely with him that we'd be unified the way we will be in eternity. Some of you will be familiar with a, a phrase that we use sometimes in churches or in study of theology that's already not yet. That's a phrase that continued to come up again and again and again as I read about this. But that's the idea. And it is this, that in this life, we already can experience the fullness of God. Because of what Jesus has done, because of the Holy Spirit's work in our life, we can already experience that perfect unity with God. This passage says that Christ is dwelling in our hearts through faith. That is a miracle beyond our comprehension yet again. And we can experience that. Though this world has fallen, though we still sin, we make mistakes, there's brokenness, we can experience that fullness of God already. And at the same time, we cannot yet 
experience the perfected state of that that will be in eternity. In other words, what we have now is a foretaste of what we'll have one day when we're unified fully with him. And we can look forward with anticipation and excitement to a day when we'll have that even more so. And what follows here, if you read verses 19 and 20, you could read the rest of this book in Ephesians, that's when he gives the marching orders. And the idea behind this is that with the fullness of God comes perfect obedience, submission, and discipleship of God. All this comes from Paul's prayer. And it really comes to a head with our full knowledge compelling us into that fullness of God. So, as we close our time this morning together, we're going to spend just a few minutes putting these things into practice. And so I'm going to have just a really uh, simple handful of exercises we'll do together that can fix our minds on Jesus. And these things are going to be brief. We're not going to take all morning. All I would ask is if you jump in, take part of these things. These are things I've found helpful in communing with God and I think can help you as well. And I'm sure some of these are practices you have already. Um, they'll turn our thoughts toward Christ. The first is, I'm just going to ask you to pick up a Bible in front of you, or maybe you have your own Bible, or your phone. I use my phone a lot of times in church. And just spend a few minutes reading a passage of Scripture silently to yourself. I'm going to give us maybe a couple minutes to do this. I'm actually going to come down and do this myself in one of the chairs below. But as you do this, I just put a couple suggestions up here on the screen. I think you can see these. Revelations 4, Psalm 139. 1 John 1, Jeremiah 31, the first portion of that. Maybe there's another passage that really speaks to you you'd like to read. But part of this is simply consuming our minds with the gospel and with the nature of Christ. And so for just a few minutes, silently, to yourself, I'd ask that you read these passages and dwell on and think about and pray through what Christ teaches you there. And the goal would be that your mind would be in awe of the love of Christ that we see in this passage. So spend just a few moments doing that, and then I'll have a few other things for us to do afterward. Okay, now the next thing I want to do is really dangerous to do on a Sunday morning. But what I want to do is I want to spend a couple minutes simply thinking about the beauty of God in creation. And here's the dangerous part. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and think about a time when you've seen God's beauty. The dangerous part is I know you're going to try to fall asleep on me. So I'm going to ask you not to do that. All right, stay awake. But what I want you to do is close your eyes for a minute. And we'll do this in just a second. And think about the beauty of, of God that you've seen in his creation. Maybe there's been a place you visited or something you see that you always really are impacted by the beauty of that scene. But that's one of the things that when I, <laughs> quick confession, okay. I'm from New Jersey. That's not the confession. Uh, we lived in California, uh, Anna and I, when we first got married for a handful of years. And I would really take up a lot of arguments with Californians about how New Jersey is a better state which it is, I mean factually, statistically, it's just better. 
But one thing that I'll admit that California had is, man, it's beautiful. Like my, my drive to work there would be like a place I'd try to go see on vacation in New Jersey, right? It's just so beautiful. And there was so many times when, you know, I'd, I'd be off on a hike with my father-in-law, or we'd be driving somewhere, went to Yosemite, all these beautiful places, that I just thought, man, God made all this. Before anybody even saw this, God made this and just put it here for his own enjoyment. And the beauty and power that, and the creativity that that speaks to that God has. So for just a minute, I'm just gonna ask you, close your eyes, recall to your memory one of the beautiful scenes you've seen in creation and, and ponder for a minute about how that informs us about the creativity, the love, the holiness of God. And don't fall asleep. Yeah, there's so many things. Right? I mean, we could, we could talk about this endlessly. And it, even all these different things just show such creativity. You know, the color, the power, the creatures, the, these crazy things. There's lightning that comes down out of the sky. Like, God thought of all these things and created them. And that's the God that we get to worship and serve. He's one of this incredible beauty and creation. And that should cause us, here, here's the end point with this, that should cause us to give him praise. If we stop just saying, man, that's a pretty rainbow, Okay, great. But if instead we think, wow, like we, we worship a God who thought of that and is powerful enough to just speak that into existence. It's incredible. Okay, two more things, and then, uh, then we'll wrap things up this morning. This next one's actually pretty dangerous for me to ask you to do as well. I want to ask you to think of someone that God has used in your life to, to impact you toward himself. So in other words, someone that God has, has brought to know you and that you've been blessed by, especially in a spiritual way. And uh, what we'll do is for just a minute, we'll just pray and, and thank the Lord, you know, silently, but we, we can thank the Lord for the intricate ways that he's woven that together. And I would also say, take a minute, if you're willing, and shoot that person a text, the person that comes to your mind, shoot them a text to say thank you. Now it's dangerous, because we all got phones, we know how it works. But I'm gonna ask you, shoot that text, put, slip that puppy back away, okay? Don't, you know how it works. So that, that's one other practice I wanna do really quickly here, is to just pause, Think about how God has woven our lives together, how he's brought us to know him, the people that he's used to do that, and to be thankful to him for the people he's brought in our lives, and to maybe shoot them a quick message of encouragement uh, for just a second.
The last thing I want to do before we get in, we're going to spend a little bit of time in communion this morning, is maybe a little bit on the opposite side of the spectrum, to just pray for someone you may know who's dear to you, who, who might not know Jesus. And I, I, uh, I thought to do this just because that's a, a kingdom, gospel, heavenly work that we get to be involved in. The Bible says that we've been given this ministry of reconciliation. In other words, God, in a large part, uses us, broken, sinful, fallen people, to bring other broken fallen, sinful people to himself. So just for a minute, think about someone you might know that maybe they don't know the Lord, maybe you're not sure, but to pray that they'd come to know Jesus and be saved by the power of his grace. As we get ready to go into a time of communion, I, I wanted to just say thank you to you guys for jumping. I know some of this is things we don't always typically do in church. I, <laughs> the reason I, I wanted to do some of these things, my father-in-law is, uh, he's a youth ministry professor out in California. He's a youth pastor for a long time. And one of the things he always says was, he said, a lot of youth pastors go to preach in main ch church service and they just leave all the fun stuff they do behind. So I hate that. Th these are the kind of things we'd always do when I was with college ministry or high school ministry. And, I always felt really blessed by this time and found students and, and parents ended up seeing them do the same. So I appreciate you guys jumping into this. My hope with this would be, this, these would just be a few snapshots of ways that throughout our week, we can be interacting with Christ and that ultimately all this would lead toward what this passage talked about. That it would help us in everything we do on our drive home, while we eat, while we walk around, while we do our work, while we have our devotional times, that in all those things be pointing our thoughts toward Jesus, that we would be in awe, in awe of him, that we'd love him, and that would ultimately lead us to living a life more and more like he designed for us to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful as we recall to memory what you've done for us, that you chose to came to this earth, sinful, broken world. We'd marred your creation. And you loved us so much that you came to die for us, that we could be forgiven of our sin. You took the weight and darkness of all that on yourself. And then three days later, you rose to defeat it forever. It gives us so much joy and hope, God. Our eternity will be spent with you. And our prayer as a church this morning is just that we would focus more on that. We want to live the way that you've commanded us to. We want to be the light that you've designed us to be. And we pray that you'd help us to set our minds and our thoughts on you in a way that we would both be convinced of who you are and just completely saturated in your love and also that we would be compelled to action because of that. So please, as you indwell us, as you work within us, we pray that you would accomplish that for your glory and for our good and that in all things we bring you glory. Amen. Amen.